We're going to continue our study from 1 Corinthians. And today I've titled the message, True Allegiance. For the past uh, number of weeks, we've been studying sort of a series within the series from chapter 8 to chapter 10. And why this is a series within a series is because it has to do with a particular issue that the Corinthians were struggling with. And that issue has to do with eating a food that was once sacrificed to idols. And Paul's stance regarding this issue is that as long as the food is sent out to the marketplace, and now in the grocery store you can purchase the food, you can't say that that food is tainted because it's gone through many, many hands, through many, many processes. And if you get really nitpicking about whether this was the meat that was sacrificed to the idols or not, there's no end to that because then everything else will be tainted. Everything that we eat in today, it may have been raised or cultivated by pagans, those people who do not know the Lord. They may even have been sacrificed to some other gods, but later on they decided that there's all this leftover and they're going to profit because they can send it to the markets and it can be eaten by people in general. So Paul is saying that don't get nitpicky about this. Just eat what is in the market, put it on the table, pray a consecrated prayer, and believe that God is the Lord over all these wonderful resources and sustenances. And so he is agreeing with uh, the Corinthians who felt really liberated in their spirit that they didn't have to get so picky about it. But at the same time, uh, they were becoming uh, somewhat arrogant that they can exercise their freedom without restraint when there are other people whose conscience is weak, whose faith is weak, and they think simply because maybe the meat was sacrificed to an idol, it must still be tainted. It might even be demonized. So how can we know? And they're struggling with their conscience regarding this matter. And so Paul says, in a case like that, when it has to do with others who have weak conscience, then we must restrain ourselves, even though in our own conscience we're liberated because God is the God over all wonderful resources. But when a weak Christian is nearby, then we need to be considerate of them. So restrain your freedom. That's what he's saying. And he even gave a personal example that he, as an apostle of God, had all these rights to claim support from the churches in general, but he's not going to take advantage of that. He says, I have those rights, but if it's going to be a stumbling to some people who are questioning that maybe we are receiving too much support, we have too many rights, then I will not use that right. And I will freely share the gospel with you. But he also 
gave a negative example of the Israelites who had all these privileges, all this freedom in the Holy Spirit, and they ended up sinning and rebelling against God, committing all kinds of idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, grumbling against God, and the leadership that God had established. The scenario which is very much similar to the Corinthian church. And divine judgment came upon them. Now after all these talks, he wants to make a concluding statement in chapter 10, verse 14, to chapter 11, verse 1. That's where we are at right now. So let's look at this text, and let's consider three parts in this text. And first is in verses 14 to 22. Let's read this out loud together. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share or partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons too. You cannot have a part or partake in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? In verse 14, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Apparently, amongst the, the Christians in Corinth, there were some who still thought that they could associate with pagan worship. They are Christians, but they could attend some festival or some ritual that was being held in a pagan temple. Perhaps they were ignorant, or perhaps they were compromising. We don't know, but there were some who were delving into pagan worship, participating in the pagan worship. But I think Paul is more concerned about the same group of people who were proclaiming Christian liberty and they were so arrogant about it. They thought their faith was so strong they can go into the temple of the pagan gods and that's not going to phase them. That's not going to touch them. So sure, my friend who is pagan has invited me to come to their worship of their pagan god and they have celebration afterwards, eating together. No problem, because my faith is strong. I know that I belong to Christ. I can participate in all of this, and it's not going to faze me. But here, Paul clearly distinguishes what is known as the Lord's table, which we know that this is referring to the communion, or the Last Supper, or you know, some people would call it the Eucharist, and the table of demons. 
And when we're talking about the Lord's table, we're talking about the bread and the wine, which signify the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the central uh, theme for us Christians. And so it's crucial that we celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Lord in a bodily form. But the table of demons have to do with meat that is sacrificed to the idols. Before they were sent off to the marketplace, the meat was shared with the priests and the people who have come to sacrifice. And they would celebrate in the temple of this pagan god. What is interesting in this text is that we see series of common terms. Okay, the root word here is koinonos, and you might recognize that sounds very similar to koinonia. And it is. Koinonos is defined as partner, companion, or participant, and koinonia is defined as participation, fellowship, communion. This series of words we find it in four cases. And in addition to that, there's another word, meteiko, which means to partake or have a part in or share or participate, as though in eating the meal. We find that in two cases. So we, we see six terms that's related to sharing or participating, engaging in the ceremony, the ritual. What is communion? We cannot understand what Paul is implying or what Paul is concerned with unless we understand what communion is. What is communion? When we have communion service, what are we really doing? In, in communion, we have two elements. We have the bread and the wine or the grape juice. And we say these two elements signify the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But does it simply signify? That's it. It's just a symbol. It's just a way to commemorate the death and the resurrection of our Lord. Is that all it is? Well, that view is known as symbolism or memorialism. And that was the view that was espoused by Ulrich Zwingli, one of the reformers. Now, he, he wanted to advocate this way of understanding communion because so many people in those days, during the time of Reformation, still had this Roman Catholic way of understanding communion. So, you know, the Roman Catholics, they literally believed that during the time of Mass, and that particular time when the priest would consecrate these two elements, these two elements, the bread, and the wine literally become, in essence, the blood and the body of Christ. So much so that after it is consecrated, once it is hoisted up, everyone has to bow because it has literally become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And there was a lot of superstition associated with this notion of communion known as substantiation, that the substance actually are transformed because Jesus did say, this is my body, this is my blood. And so Zwingli, one of the radical um, reformers, he said, we don't have, want to have anything to do with that kind of superstition. So he advocated absence of the presence of Jesus' body 
here on earth or even during the time of communion. It's just a symbol. His body has ascended to heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And so there's no presence here. The presence is up there. On the other hand, we have two great reformers who gave us wonderful insight regarding communion. Martin Luther wanted to take Jesus' words seriously. Jesus did say, this is my body, this is my blood, but he could not accept the Roman Catholic version of transubstantiation. So how did he define that? How did he go around that? He wanted to say the presence of Jesus is here when we're going through this communion ceremony. But he didn't want to say that those elements have become transformed into some mystical body and blood of Christ. So what he advocated is known as consubstantiation, and that means with. It's with those substances that Christ is present, not that the substances have changed. I know this might sound very technical, but I'm going somewhere with this, so just bear with me. So he was saying that Jesus' presence is with or under. With and under the substance, but it is not to be confused with those substances. Now, Calvin, he's the second generation uh, reformer, so he had more time to think about this. And he said, well, I think people are still going to be very confused if you embrace it like Luther. How are you going to be able to differentiate between whether the substance is or it's actually the body of Christ is not to be confused with substance, but he is somewhere around in that vicinity. They're still going to be confused with the substances. So, Calvin basically breached what Zwingli was concerned with and what Luther was advocating, and he advocated the role of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the body of Christ has ascended, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. So it's not the literal physical body here. There's nothing that has to do with substances here. But the Holy Spirit can take that body that is of Jesus Christ ascended in heaven and relay that to us so that it becomes a spiritual presence for us when we go through the communion ceremony. This I accept. Personally, I think this is the best explanation that is possible. Because something spiritual happens. Something mystical happens. When we worship God in such such way, with faith, with humility, with love and adoration of God. Today we had a worship service. Today we had songs of praise. And we had those 15, 20 minutes of just getting into that worship. I don't think it's just a, you know, the technical matter of singing beautiful songs and you know, following the melody line or you know, you know, looking at those lyrics and, and trying to be blessed by the message. I don't think it's just limited to that. I think something spiritual literally happens when we really believe that there is a presence of the Lord that we feel very mightily, very strongly. And of course, the presence of the Lord is everywhere. But the presence of the Lord is specifically here in the place of worship. And the Spirit of Jesus is also there in our spirits because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 
but this becomes magnified, or you might even say heightened or accentuated during the time of worship, then how much more so when we are engaged in communion, in which we are really going back to 2,000 years ago when Jesus with his disciples in that upper room, the night before he was to be crucified, he gathered them in this intimate setting, and he's almost kind of giving them the last will and testament, and says, do this, do this in remembrance of me. But this is my body. This is my blood I give unto you. So you see, if in Christian communion that there's something really spiritual happening, we might call it mystical because we don't know how to explain this, but it's something real happening, then for someone to get engaged in demonic worship ceremony and giving sacrifice to demon spirits, and then taking those meals together with pagan friends, don't you think that's going to affect them spiritually? This is what Paul is saying. So what Paul is saying is when it has to do with worship, we really need to clearly define the object of worship the goal of worship, the purpose of worship, the essence of worship. Is it God or is it demons? Is it God or some human personality? Or is it God or some ideology? Is it God or anything that is of the world? And friends, we may not go directly to a demon or have an idol established and bow down to that today. But we do that in a subtle way, in every way. Anything that is placed before God is an idol. If we bow to that, if we depend on that, if we trust that more than God, if we spend more time and more energy and more passion towards that, then that has become our idols. And that can affect us spiritually. And that kind of spiritual atmosphere kind of comes upon us and upon our family, upon our fellowship. We must take this matter very, very seriously. So Paul is saying regarding allegiance to God, there must be no compromise whatsoever. I personally have experienced a number of occasions in which you know, I, I want to reach out to people. I, I don't want to be one of those kind of a Pharisee Christian who separates himself from the people of the world and I don't want to be tainted. Oh, I'm afraid that I might get you know, polluted or corrupted if I even... So I, I venture into these people's areas. Because I need to understand the people of the world. But I also know the danger of participating in their communion with their gods, their spirits, their ideologies. And we have to be very careful about that. Now let's go to the next section. In this next section, Paul is giving us a, such a common sense Words of wisdom. It is just unbelievable. Now he's just wrapping everything up 
from chapter 10, verses 23 to 30. And he just says it in such a succinct way, in such a systematic way. Let's read this together. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience. If I take part in the meal with thanksgiving, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Paul begins off in this section by saying, I have the right to do anything. You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. You say, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Again, he's talking about this Corinthian libertinists. They're advocating Christian freedom. They're saying, we have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus. We have salvation. And so, what can bind us? No more legalism. No more superstitionism. We're free to do whatever. But then Paul is asking them, is whatever you feel free to do, is it really beneficial to you? Is it really beneficial to you or the people around you? Of course, as Christians, we have a lot of freedom. You know, We're not called to be such a Puritan-minded that, that we're so afraid of getting tainted by the rest of the world. If, if we operate that way, we cannot live in this world. We cannot be cloistered and just be on the defensive all the time. You know, COVID-19 has clearly taught us we can't just be cloistered here. We need to go out and venture out. We need to take some risks. But in the name of freedom, we could endanger ourselves. We could endanger the lives of others. That happens all the time. So the question that we have to ask is, not, if, not just the question of freedom. Am I free? Do I have the right to this or not? But is what I am doing, is it really beneficial for me? Is it really beneficial for others around us? And then Paul says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Is it constructive? Does it build up or is it destructive? Then he says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. This ought to be the guideline for us. Altruism. Think about others. Not just think about yourself. Not just about preserving your own sanity and your own spirituality. The people around you, how are they doing? We need to be concerned about that. Then he says in verses 25 to 26, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything 
in it. He's been saying this all throughout. These three chapters, he's been saying, you know, something that is out there in the marketplace, don't associate that with direct worship and direct eating of the meal there in the temple. And I think he's saying that because it's gone through many, many hands now. It's all mixed up with a lot of other meat. We cannot know for sure. So don't get hung up on that. Just brush that aside and eat that with faith. You know, remember uh, Paul one time he got bitten by a, a poisonous snake? And you know, that poison should poison him, right? But you know, what can he do? He got bitten, but he shook it off and he must have prayed a prayer of healing and consecration. He was just fine. I'm not saying that we should presume something like that in COVID-19 situation, of course, you know. Because I know there, there are many, many godly people who have actually died, you know, because of this. And they were not protected. And sometimes not even by the powerful workings of God. But what I'm saying is this. Anything that's out in the meat market, common sense says, you know, let's just eat it without questioning it. Okay? And give thanks to the Lord for that. But then in verse 27, he says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal, now we're talking about house meal, we're not talking about the temple meal. Paul already addressed that issue. You don't go to the temple and dine together and participate on, at the table of demons. But he's saying, what if an unbeliever invites you to their home for a meal? And you want to go. You want to fellowship. Maybe you want to reach out to them. Paul says, go. And eat whatever is put before you without raising any questions of conscience. I think he's been consistent throughout this section that we've been studying. Again, just go and dine with them. Don't question that. Then in verse 28, Paul says, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. Now, who would say that? They invite you to their home, and maybe the host, maybe the guests, one of them But I think this might have been served, or rather, this was offered as a sacrifice. This came from the pagan temple. The very people that Paul has been concerned about all this time. People of weak conscience, weak faith. And so that is causing them to tremble. And that is causing them to doubt. And if you have someone like that, then Paul says, do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. I think that's very straightforward too. If there's someone with weak conscience, then we make the decision based upon those who are weak. We don't create criteria and conditions based upon those who are strong. We don't do that in the church. In the church, we accommodate to everyone from the bottom up. If not, then the church becomes an elitistic church, and that's going to oust all the people who are in the vicinity, who could come into the church if we would open up to them and accommodate to their needs. And you know Jesus always reached out 
to the lower folks. He wasn't matching it to the level of the Pharisees. He was always matching it to the outcasts. And he welcomed them into his midst. Verse 29b, For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? See, he's frustrated because I, 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 my conscience is clear. I think I can eat this. And you know, I want to give thanks, but while I'm giving thanks, people are suspicious that maybe I'm engaged in something uh, impure, something unholy, something that has been tainted by demons. Why should I cause that kind of confusion? And I have to struggle with this whole issue. I gave thanks so that this would be consecrated, but these people are doubting all around me. How can I have fellowship with these people? Why make that an issue? Why don't I just say, hey, host or members in this fellowship, if you feel like this is something questionable, then let's not do it. We don't have to have the meat. We can have some vegetables, some fruit, something that we can be sure that was not a part of pagan worship. We can do that for sure. So finally, Paul, now in order to wrap this section up, he gives some very practical guidelines. I, I love this guideline. It's such a succinct way of expressing how Christians should operate. And he doesn't get very specific about it, but he does give us the general principles. And this is what we need to go with. Let's read uh, verses 31 to verse 1 of chapter 11. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Some guidelines Paul gives us. First guideline, do everything for the glory of God. Ask this question, does this give glory to God? Whether we are eating or drinking, during the time of our meal, over this whole issue of like meat, could it be sacrificed to the idol or not? What should I do? Or what should I not do? Whatever we do or not do, we must do it for the glory of God. And along with this, I would like to ask this question. Am I willing to relinquish my, my own glory, fame, reputation, or my pride, or sometimes my own definition of Christian theology? Am I willing to sometimes let go of that for the sake of the Lord's glory and honor? And sometimes we, you know, me being a theologian, you know, theology is very important for me. And what is a problem for me is because I, I feel like I really know the Orthodox theology, I know Evangelical theology, I know Reformed theology, and I really adhere to that. 
when I see people not quite you know, centered in those theology, I tend to judge them right away. And I make no room. I make no room to accommodate them. I, I judge and say, hmm, their spirituality can't be right. Their heart with God can't be right. That's heretical. But you see, sometimes even that I must let go until they grow up, until they become more orthodox. I might have to do that for the glory of God. Will God ask us to do that? I think he, he does sometimes. Sometimes I have to let go of all the theological learnings that I've received at the seminary for the moment so that I can make some connection with the people who are not theologically well-versed. But all of this for the glory of God. Second thing, Paul says is that we must do everything with consideration of others. Not only the glory of God, consideration of others. You see, the Christian faith is not only vertical. Relation with God is always horizontal. At the same time, oh, I'm doing this for glory of God. Yeah, but have you considered others? No, but I know I'm doing it for glory of God. Hallelujah. Well, what about others? Paul says, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. Now, is Paul talking about super sensitivity and self-consciousness, having fear of man and, oh, oh what, what are they thinking about me? I don't think so. That's not what he's talking about. You know, that kind of sensitivity is still self-oriented. He's talking about other-oriented. He's talking about you know, other people's well-being and welfare. Being sensitive to that. Being considerate of that in everything that you do. So it is not your centered, but others-oriented. Another principle that he gives is this. Do everything as a way of witnessing to others. Everything has to be a witness unto others. Reaching out to them so that they have a winning chance to receive salvation, to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Paul says in verse 33, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. See, Paul's line of reason is this. Okay? I have the freedom, but I must restrain my freedom, or I must deny myself for the sake of common good, considering others. And by being considerate of others, I have the possible chance of leading them to salvation, which is the ultimate thing. But what if we do not follow the line of reason of Paul? And we say, well, I have freedom. I don't want to deny myself. I don't care about what other people think. This is my own conviction. Well, then at the end, these people would lose their opportunity to receive salvation because you were not willing to give them access to that. Because you were not being an instrument of Christ to lead them into salvation. Then finally, of course, this final statement is, it says everything. Do everything exemplifying Christ-likeness. That's the bottom line. Operate as Christ would operate. 
How would Christ operate? We know the examples from the gospel. Now we have the Holy Spirit who is constantly teaching us how would Jesus do it if he was in my own body? If he was operating as Daniel came, how would Jesus do it? That's all I need to ask. And so Paul says in chapter 11, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So to the Corinthian church, which may be struggling over this issue of meat, that was one sacrifice to the idols. And those who are strong saying, it's okay to eat the meat. It's consecrated and, you know, besides all the idols are nothing, you know. And they don't have any power. Demons have no power in this. So we're strong in the Lord. We can eat and gobble up the food and just go into our stomach and come out the other end. And God will know what to do with the nutrition and so forth. Simple logic, right? But that's considering your faith. Now, once other people are involved, once other people must be factored in that equation, how does that equation work out? Because in the body of Christ, there are those who are strong, there's those who are you know, somewhat strong, those who are miserably weak. And Paul says always, it's those who are weak that we should focus on. Because that's what Jesus did. He always considered the weak ones. So when the elite in his days were the Pharisees, the well-learned people and scribes, the priests, and they said, why should we accept them? Why should we accept lepers? Why should we accept the prostitutes? Why should we accept you know, the tax collectors, the traders in those days? And they said no to that. But Jesus opened the way. This is the only way they can be saved. And so Jesus reached out to them. So all we need to do is ask this question. It's not really talking about Paul. It's talking about how Jesus would have handled the situation in the church of Corinth. I think everything that Paul has been saying was almost what Jesus would say. He's understanding the mind of Jesus, attitude of Jesus. And he's simply speaking those words forth prophetically to the Corinthian church. And I think this is the way we should operate in all that we do. And so we have learned some very important um, principles. Let me just repeat that once again and summarize this message altogether. Do everything for the glory of God. Can you repeat after me? Do all things for glory of God. Do all things with consideration of others. Do all things with consideration of others. Do all things as a way of witnessing to others. Yeah, make every opportunity to witness to others. And finally, do everything exemplifying Christ-likeness. Be Christ to others. How is Christ thinking? What does Christ want to do? How would he handle this problem? There must be a solution to this because Christ is living by his Holy Spirit, dwelling us. Or you want to face that 
question before the judgment seat of Christ. Because Christ may say to us, you know what? I was right there with you when you were struggling with that dilemma, that problem, and you, you forgot about me. You handled it out of your own ego, out of your own theological leanings. You didn't consider how I would do it. As simple as that. He's not saying that you have to have a theological learning. He's not saying that you have to have years of discipleship in the church. He's saying, think very simply. How did I live my life? And how did I minister in those days? And what I want to do in and through you now, in this present moment. Think about that and you will have the answer. More and more I study Paul's teachings. I'm just so impressed by this first century apostle that, wow, he didn't have the internet, he didn't have the computer, he didn't have the you know, mobile smartphone, and he didn't have the whole library set, he didn't even have the, you know, the you know, entire Bible to carry with him in those days. You know, in those days, they still had the scrolls, you know, and they were, he was just writing part of the writings which would go into the canon of the Bible. And yet he did so fine. Why? Because he was always thinking about Christ, what he heard from other apostles, what he experienced on the way to Damascus, you know, Christ, and what the Holy Spirit is teaching him moment by moment. He did just fine. And now he's counseling the Corinthian church how to go about solving this issue, this dilemma, this problem that they're facing in their present moment. We can do the same. You know, our situation may be somewhat different. It may not be the issue about the meat that has been sacrificed to the idols. It may be something else. It may be a political issue. Who knows? It may be an economic issue. It may be a social issue. It may be an issue that has to do with uh, the people who, who think and believe in different ways from us. They operate with different style and, and they have different traditions from us. How are we going to deal with all of that? We need to be agile. I love the term agile or agility because agility talks about firmness but at the same time flexibility. It's, it's not weak, it's strong, but it's also very flexible, bendable. I think this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you know, I could eat meat, I'm free to eat meat, but I refuse to eat meat. If I must not, I will not. And he says, don't go to the temple and dine with them. No, but it's okay to dine with them at their home. But at their home, someone says, maybe this was associated with the demon worship. Okay, then I don't need to. It all depends on the situation. He can make those changes. 
it can be flexible. But uh, the frustration that I find in Christianity, and sometimes when, even when I look at myself, in my nearly 40, 40 not 40 decades, four, four decades of Christ, Christian life, I look at myself and I say, wow, I was so narrow-minded, so just, just, you know, tunnel vision, so like stagnant and one-sided. I didn't have the flexibility. I didn't have the agility. And that's why I lost the, an opportunity to make positive testimony for the Lord in those days. But I want to better myself. And I hope that you want to better yourself as Christians as well. Because we have all the tools. We have the Bible. We have Christ and salvation. We have the Holy Spirit. And we have fellow brothers and sisters with whom we can you know, discuss the matters in the Bible or issues that's, you know, there in the world. And we can work things out. We can figure things out. I really believe that we can do that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.